We've been studying the stories of Ruth and Samuel this summer, and we have uh, two more stories left for story of Samuel. Today's story is about the first revival happened in the book of Samuel at a place called the Mizpah. And the many Christians in the world often name their revival meetings Mizpah Conference. So when you hear the Mizpah meeting, you can Im immediately can connect. This is about spiritual rededication. So today we'll talk about revival. What comes to your mind when you hear the word revival? When was the last time you heard the word revival? Friday? Oh, praise God. Somebody is, you know, it seems like these days, you know, I don't hear much about revival. Actually, the fact that we don't often hear revival seems like we need a revival. But what is a revival? I want to give one good definition by a person named Charles Finney. Charles Finney is a unique American Christian leader known for Second Great Awakening. He was a lawyer by vocation, and he was a licensed preacher of a Presbyterian church. Licensed preacher means he didn't go to seminary. He was a lay man who became a, a preacher, a revival preacher. And he wrote a very uh, substantial volume book called uh, Lectures on Revival, and uh, I read it. And uh, in that book, he defined a very uh, revival simply in this way. Revival is a nothing else than a new beginning of a obedience to God. Revival is a new beginning of a obedience to God. Revival is not an emotional outburst with a fiery preaching of a hellfire and brimstone or wrath of God and the fear of a eternal damnation. More than anything else, Revival means one's a deep recognition of a spiritual poverty and emptiness of a life that prompts one to prompts one to return to God. I chose this uh, this passage and this topic to uh, share with you today because we are at the end of a 2000 uh, summer 2019, and we are about to enter the, into the fall season. And then, okay, there are not many new in the Texas, okay. So how about your summer? Was it meaningful, 2019 summer? I think compared to the last year, summer 2019, we were more productive and intentional. We were very intentional. So our house churches did not succumb to the spirit of a summer slump, like last year, and uh, vacated our, you know, vacated our mind with uh, dream vacations or cool vacations. But we kept fellowshipping by welcoming new friends and also encouraging one another. So now it is my prayer that today's message, proclaimed word, will prepare us for the revival and harvest of a fall or rest of a 2019. So as we read our text, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 to 12, I wanted to share, I want to us to know the requisite of a revival, requisite. What will bring a revival into our life? So let's read 
responsibly. 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 to 12. And uh, I'm going to read first and then you. So the men of Kyrios Jerium came and took the ark of God, ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab, the house on the hill, consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. So Samuel said to the all Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourself of a foreign gods and the Ashtoreth, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel said, Assemble all people at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When the Philistines heard that Israel has assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord answered him. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Beth Car. So first requisite of a revival is a recognizing to recognize your brokenness and emptiness. Verse 2, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. The first thing we notice about this story is that all people of Israel turned back to the Lord. It means it was not Samuel who initiated the revival movement. It was the people. The first fact about Mizpah revival, their revival was not institutional, nor programmed, but personal and corporate. It was not a top-down, but it was a bottom-up. Sign of uh, often uh, authentic spiritual movement has been always started by somebody who experienced utter brokenness and cried out to God, and then experienced God's healing grace and then began to share, and then it caught the fire. One good example of that is uh, Promise Keepers. How many of you remember Promise Keepers? OK, these are old people. <laughs> the reason I said is a Promise Keepers heyday was the 1990s to early 2000, about, I mean, almost 30 years ago, 30, 20 years ago. And it swept the entire country. They had a meeting in every city, every major stadium, packed with a man repenting 
about their infidelity and asking God's forgiveness and the dedication to rebuild each family as a shepherd or you know steward of God. It was a so it was a real nationwide spiritual movement that lasted more than 10 years. Do you know how the promise keeper started? It all started by one man's testimony. His name is Bill McCartney, former football coach of University of Colorado at Boulder. And one day he came home and this is a wife that he married for 30 plus years is ready to leave, leave him because she was, he was chasing the national championship more than anything else in his, in his life. Even though he was a professed Christian, he didn't, attend, he didn't care for his family. So his wife is about to walk out of the door. And then he found out his daughter, teenage daughter, was, was pregnant with a child out of wedlock with one of his football players. And in the outside, he was a successful football player, but domestically, he was completely, completely under demise. And then so he took a leave of absence. He began to attend a, a healing com marriage counseling conference with his wife and so forth. And soon, the family life and faith was restored. And then his church asked the testimony, and they shared the testimony, it moved so many people. And the news got out, and the other churches invited him, and he began to share, and then one testimony led to another, and then soon it became like, and others were also you know, following his footsteps. That's how the Incredible Promise Keeper movement happened. So oftentimes, the real spiritual movement can happen by anybody who really experienced God. You know, uh, 1910, a British a newspaper uh, posed a question, and uh, the question uh, to general public and asked everybody to reply to that question. The question was, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And uh, many experts, such as social uh, scientists, political analysts, ethical experts, and the you know, scientists and educational reformers, they all gave what's wrong about Britain and the, what kind of things they have to, supposed to do to make a country better. And then my favorite, or oh, one of uh, my, uh, my favorite writer, Roman Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton wrote his response to that question, what's wrong with the world? And his answer was, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours. G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton said, I'm a sinner. That's what's wrong with this world. He owned it. And today's story, today's revival simply means when we own our responsibility, that's when God works. You know, verse here, the verse 2, that they turn back to the Lord, right? But uh, in Hebrew, actually the word turn back means lamented or mourned. That's why King James or a New American Standard Bible is translated, they mourn before God. And verse 6, they also express their mourning before God in this so-called water rite. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord and confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. 
water in the Jewish ritual is symbolized tears. Pouring it down means shedding the tears. And the Lamentations 2.19, Jeremiah expressed in this way, Arise, cry out in the night, as the watches of a night begin. Pour out your heart like a water in the presence of the Lord. Now, what did they mourn? What did the Israelites mourn? They did not mourn that their God was not powerful enough to deliver them. They already saw the ark of God was powerful even when it was taken, captured and taken by Philistines as a war spoil. And they heard that how the ark of God spoiled all the Philistines' land and the, 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 the temples of Dagon. So what they realized is not their problem of their life is not God, nor even Philistines. What did they confess God to today? We are, it is our problem is our sin. Our problem is ourselves is a problem, God. God, forgive us. We have a sin before you and against you. That's the first step of a revival. Revival does not take a place unless we own the responsibility. You know, from last Sunday's message about the raided by the lost ark, one thing I hope everyone to remember is that our God is stubborn God. Our God refused to be used by us as a means to whatever end that we want to achieve. Our God does not move. He's a stubborn God, does not move unless we move in compassion. Unless we confess our sin, unless we recognize our brokenness, God does not move. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you feel hungry and empty and broken in your heart and about your life? If you so, do you recognize that it is not because of other people, such as your spouse, your children, your, 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 your co-workers, your boss, or even your friends? or your circumstance, do you recognize most of it has to do with yourself? If you do, you have a hope. The hope is God's remedy. That's the second requisite of a revival. That's that, revi that requisite is remove the idols and rededicate everything to God. When all Israelites confess we have sinned against the Lord, simply meaning we are the problem, Samuel told them solution. The solution was forsake it all and focus on God. And he said, verse 3, So Samuel said to the old Israelite, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then read yourselves above foreign gods and the astrolabes and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of a Philistine. So the Israelites to away their Baals and astrolabes and serve the Lord only. Loving God with all of our heart means removing idols and rededicating everything to God. Who are the Baals and Ashtoreths? Baal was the god of storm and rain. And Ashtoreth was his consort, lover, goddess of fertility. Together they represent prosperity. You need a rain for successful farming and pleasure, the goddess of uh, fertility in the ancient world. And here I think we must recognize faith always challenged by prosperity and pleasure 
especially in the form of greed and then fleshly or sexual desires or pleasures. And I want to say this. True faith is always against the false prosperity and pleasure and ultimately prevails against them. Faith has her own prosperity and pleasure. We have to know this. We have our own. Our faith guarantees us our, I mean, God-given prosperity and God-blessed pleasures. Our faith is not without the prosperity and pleasures. You know, I'm a child of God. And the Bible calls us we are the heir of God. And we're going to study the book of Ephesus. Um, in the beginning, first Sunday of uh, September, and you will see how much God blessed us. We are heir of God. That means whatever God owns is mine. Who can be richer than, you know, one with the asset of almighty creator of the universe? That's you and me. And God gave us his image. And when, even when, when we failed him or fell from him, God rescued us and God gave us ultimately his image, which is Jesus Christ. So by grace, you and I are created fearfully and wonderfully. That's what the psalmist say, but actually richly from the beginning. Even when we became a sinner, God, by more abounding grace, recreated us righteously from the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. So we have a greatest prosperity or wealth in, in the universe. And our pleasure is a much greater than that pleasure, the materialistic, physical, fleshy pleasure of the world. Our pleasure is to serve God and all the people that God brings to our lives. And then really encourage them with the love of Jesus Christ. And then share how Jesus touched us. Now, whenever... We hear in the Old Testament, Israelites struggling with their idols and false religion. Modern Christians like us, we feel sort of uh, odd and we feel that uh, I'll never do that. I'll never bow down before the whatever dumb, you know, you know, statue of an idol, the ugly whatever the statues. Or I'll have, you know, I'll never deny Jesus, especially in favor of a false religion. Okay, let me ask a question a little differently. In this text, twice, returning to God means serving God only. Serving God only with all your heart. So are we loving God with all of our heart? Have you lately convicted, felt convicted about not loving God enough? If you cannot say confidently that, uh, yes, pastor, every day I'm, 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 I'm trying and I did my best to love God with all of mind and strength and, and you know, souls, that's great. But if you can't, let me, let me help you today. Today I want to help everyone to examine your faith with a comparison. I think one of the main reasons that many Christians lack the total commitment, the wholehearted devotion to God, is we, many, many Christians have this notion of amateur Christians. Amateur Christians. 
There are two kinds of Christians. There is an amateur Christian as professional Christian. Just like many professions, uh, uh, you know, there's amateur and professional. What's the difference? Pros doing for living. Pros doing for money. Amateurs, they are doing for hobby. They are doing for pleasure. As a result, amateurs, they're not really serious about what they do, whatever that thing is, sport or something else. And at the same time, they expect the pros. That's where you get money, you get paid, so you better do better than I kind of expectation. So translating this to, to the church setting, I get paid. Do you? You don't get paid. So you think I'm a pro and you are amateur, right? And then you think, oh, Pastor Paul should know better and more because we pay him. Whereas me, I'm just a lay person. So my seriousness about God, not necessarily as intense as it is. That's his job. He got paid for it. Really? Really? You know what Bible says? We are all bought with the price of Christ. God bought each one. God already paid a hefty price for each one of us. Yes, I'm getting paid now, but you got also paid. Did you know that? You know? And now, actually, those kind of a beginning pros, they do for money because they have to make a living. But consumer pros, they don't do for money. They do as a privilege, and they do with a purpose. They go for legacy. Why do you think a Tiger Woods is still trying to play golf? He made enough money to make himself comfortable, right? But you know, we, we are very content to being an amateur Christian. I'm speaking amateur in the sense of a very pejorative term. And uh, amateurs are not serious about what they do. Except the very few uh, special amateurs. Do we have a path here? Oh, it's not here? She's not here? Okay. You know, uh, Sumani is not here. And uh, you know why not he's here? I hope he listened to uh, streaming. He's in Colorado. I didn't know. He's a pro lacrosse player. He flew, uh, uh, fly to Colorado to play, uh, play lacrosse. And the uh, reason I said he's a pro is because he told his children it's a work trip. <laughs> yep. And uh, I. You know, I get. I guess it's a pro bono. <laughs> but I'm sure that he's not get paid. He probably paying more. But uh, once again, because he loves it so much, actually I'm praying that uh, next time he get injured, I'm gonna pray the slowest healing. <laughs> like side point. And. Uh, we have this kind of amateur mentality. And I want to tell you this. I long for the day that I serve as a full-time pastor without getting paid from the church. So I will have a, so I'm actually working hard. And I'm investing just like you. And then one day I can self-fund myself and then serve. And then I'll say, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? And uh, amateurs, 
Someone said that I'm not, uh, uh, I actually check it out a long time ago. I was, I was, uh, I was in, I received a writing grant and uh, I tried to learn more about writing, even though all my life I've been writing. And I read uh, uh, Maya Angelou's uh, recommendation about professional writer. And then she said this, amateurs waste to be feel inspired, whereas a professional stick to a schedule. Amateurs only work and practice when they feel motivated to do so. They wait for inspiration, permission from somebody else, take action toward their goal, whatever. Professionals don't let their feelings dictate their actions. They intentionally create and stick to a schedule, whether it's a rain or shine, they go to work. She actually went to work seven o'clock in the morning, even after she became a bestseller of a and she rented a hotel room, and then she stayed there till every day, 7 to 3 p.m., working and writing. And she said this, another thing about amateurs, amateurs stole after failure, whereas a professional continued to grow after failure. Amateurs try to avoid a failure at all costs. They fear criticism, worry too much about what people would think if they fail. Amateurs give up when they face with the adversity and tough challenges. They lack mental toughness to push forward and succeed. Professionals understand failure is an inevitable and necessary part of the growth. They treat the failure and criticism like a scientist, discarding the irrelevant information, using the relevant feedback to become better at what they do. And one more thing. Amateurs, they do when they have time. Pros make a time. Amateurs, they weekend warriors. Pros, everyday warriors. Amateurs take their expertise lightly. Pros take it seriously. About speaking the expertise, you know, pros. One time, uh, when I was living in Waco, as a poor grad student, I lived in the uh, well, lower middle class where a lot of grad students rented a duplex. And uh, one day, uh, my car had a broke, uh, break in, broke in. And uh, it was, uh, my, at the time, it was a Volvo station wagon 240DL. Do you guys remember Volvo station wagon 240? It's a big boxy car. And then there are a bunch, there are several other cars who had a break in in the neighborhood. And uh, I never, so, 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 so what, what, they, what they took out was, it was more than by the time uh, more than uh, 15 years old car. And, uh, but I had a brand new CD player. I paid for $70. <laughs> and that's what they took. Now, police call came and then they said that it's done by amateur. And I said, how do you know? Look at your car. You know pros, pro uh, car thieves, they will probably break the small window to just open the, open the lock, unlock the door, and then take whatever. Guess what window this guy broke? The back window of a station wagon that's a humongous, especially Volvo station wagon, that's a humongous one, which cost me close to $1,000 to replace. I never imagined myself saying that I wish I was robbed by a professional. <laughs> 
I knew there is a value in professionalism, <laughs> even in crime. So I hope when you got robbed, I hope you are robbed by professional, not by amateur. You know, we are professional in many, today actually is a very special day. We have a career day. For the first time in our church history, we have a career day. And let me say how many of you, you know, you know okay, there are many. But, so I, I want to show you. I, I kind of wore a special socks for career day. Socks about the, uh, uh, those of you kind of new, I love, I love socks more than it, I mean, all clothing, socks is my favorite. And so a uh, year, year ago, our congregation on pastor's appreciation, they all gave me different socks. This socks is on, uh, you know, about owl. Owl is a, is a rice? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I don't. They, I, I guess, uh, their expectation is owls stay late in the night, and that's where they hunt. And you're supposed to study hard into the wee hours. That's the idea. But anyway, okay. There are so many rice people that I can't speak. Okay, negatively of them. But point is that so in lieu of uh, many professionals, I'm wearing this. I hope our youth they all come and enjoy this uh, special special uh, sharing. Now, we are all professional in whatever given area. And when it comes to professional expertise, I bet you are almost serious. And if you need to miss a church, I totally understand and you will do. But when it comes to faith, how serious are you? God doesn't have your amateur or your professional. You get paid by the church, so I expect 110% dedication from you paid clergy. And you, you just say, you know, lay person, 10%. That's not how God sees us. But that's how we see, see, see ourselves, comparing ourselves to whatever other churchgoers. God didn't call us to be just churchgoers. God calls us to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God expects a wholehearted devotion from everybody. And your profession is a God-given vocation. So whatever you do, do it as a minister of God. Amen? Let me go quickly. The third, so if you now decide to really make a God as a top priority and seek God first, now I have to tell you the bad news of our revival. The third point of our revival is that whenever there is a revival, there is always a resistance from the enemy. So resist the resistance of an enemy. Look at the verse 7. When Philistines heard the Israelites had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Israelites get there for covenant making. Samuel called them to this uh, central lo location called the Mizpah to make a formal covenant making with the Lord. And when Philistines heard that, they said this is a good opportunity to resubdue uh, re the Israelite. And obviously Israelite didn't get together for war, but for the worship service. So they are not well armed or prepared or dressed for that. So they, when they hear the sudden attack news, they were scared to death. 
And this is a spiritual truth and fact. Whenever we try to get closer to God, there are more resistance and obstacles than before. Bible is full of such stories of spiritual obstacles. For instance, when Abraham obeyed God and left his home country and family and came to Canaan, what happened first? Famine happened and then tempted him to leave the promised land. When Joseph was betrayed and sold by his brothers to Egypt as a slave, Joseph decided not to be bitter, but be faithful. Then what happened? His wife, his mistress, the wife of Potiphar, his master, seduced him, and when he refused, she falsely accused and imprisoned him as a sex offender. Same thing with the church. Every time when some kind of major event in the church is going, I know those people involved. And all of a sudden, the members who used to be like uh, fine, all of a sudden they have some issues or sicknesses. You know, I don't remember when was the last time I prayed for John Stockton's health. But uh, his prayer request, last two weeks has been a uh, health. And uh, I kind of guess why, because he is coordinating the career day. Whether it's a stress or enemy attack combined, I don't know. But for sure, or once again, it makes a point. When you go extra mile, Satan is not standing idly. Proverbs 12, uh, 24, 16, this is a verse that we all know. Though righteous men fall seven times, they rise again. But wicked stumble when calamity strikes. You know, it dawns on me. While the righteous fall many times, wicked falls only one time. The righteous fall very frequently, whereas the wicked fall fatally. That's the difference. Why? Righteous, why righteous fall more? More than the wicked? Because righteous has more resistance in his path to obey God. That's the righteous, you know. Righteous people will we'll receive more attack, more resistance from the enemy. Whereas a wicked enemy doesn't have to you know, intervene because it's already free fall. Why you bother? So one of the signs of a spiritual life progress is that you are experiencing a lot of resistance and obstacles. If that happens to you, praise God. You are being a righteous. And God will strengthen you to rise up again. You know, in today's story, notice this time of a battle. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, Philistines drew near to engage the Israel in battle. In the precise moment of sacrificing burnt animal, that's when Philistines attacked. The good news is that when we keep obeying God, God will protect us. That's the rest of the story. But I want to go to Sort of uh, uh, another important part of the revival. That is a fourth uh, uh, requisite of revival. That is, cry to the Lord. Revival means crying out to the Lord. When Israelites heard the Phili and saw the Philistines attack, they what did they ask Samuel to do? Verse eight. They said to Samuel, "Do not stop crying out to the Lord, our God, for us." that he may rescue us from the hand of a Philistine. Then Samuel took the suckling, and then he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. 
Samuel, here, twice we heard the word cry out. And the, Samuel used the word cry, and so the Lord will save. Cry and save. That's the essence of a prayer. You know, Psalm 34, 14 said, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from the all troubles. We also read the Lamentation 2.19, they rise and cry out in the night. Actually, this is a very touching. Cry out in the night. If you are under stress, if you are under deep concern and worry that you cannot sleep, don't just force to sleep. Cry out at the night, and then God will hear you. The essence of a, the essence of a prayer is a crying out to God. You know, when I said that some Christians find that such a description of prayer to be too raw, too, too, too unsophisticated, not cool enough, and they say prayer is a conversation with God, and God is the best listener, and that God hears even silent prayer of a sincere heart, things like that. But I cry out to God, not because God cannot listen to me, but because my heart demands it. If a prayer is always a calm conversation, how do you explain the Hebrews 5, 7, which says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with a fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because it is a reverent submission. Even Jesus cried out with a loud, loud, frequent shouts and the tears. Who are we that we can pray more calmly than Jesus? I want to suggest and remind you again, I said before that if you have a hard time to pray and the words does not come, you just feel with anxiety and stress, I encourage you to do Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer is a prayer that practiced by early Christians. This prayer is so simple. Jesus, Son of God, have a mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus, Son of God. I did that prayer very often. When, when the words do not come to my mind, and I'm under, you know, I, and the only thing I know is I need a God's grace and help. I just say, Jesus, Son of God, have a mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the early Christians, they practiced this because Jesus, Son of God, who became a human, understand me better than anybody. So they're pointing out, Jesus, Son of God, who became a human, you know how I'm going through it here. Have mercy on me. And mercy, God never rejects. So, oftentimes, when I need to pray, but words do not come, I repeat that prayer over and over again until I calm down and the Holy Spirit is a really helping me to articulate my prayer. So, brothers and sisters, do you have something like kind of, you know, <coughs> emergency or stress or challenge? Pray Jesus' prayer. Amen? Cry out to God. And the last and final thing about the revival is this. Remember God's Ebenezer regularly. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and then set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he names it Ebenezer, saying that thus far the Lord has helped us. As they were delivered from Philistines' hands, 
revival didn't end. Revival wasn't, didn't end because they achieved a long-awaited first victory over Philistines. Revival is a more than relief. Revival means you begin to relive your life with God's purpose. That's what I love about Charles Finney's definition. Revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. New beginning of obedience to God. Revival is not only one you know, event or program. Revival is an event that makes every day renewed in deeper understanding of God's grace and our utter dependence on him. By the way, you know, Charles Finney, you know, what was the end of his career after he did a, all kinds of famous you know, revival meetings and so forth? He became a president of Oberlin College in Ohio. Have you heard of Oberlin College, one of the best you know, music schools in the country? And, uh, you know, used to be very strong evangelical colleges, college in the America, and now it became a total liberal, elitist, expensive private you know, college. But reason that uh, Finney became a president of Oberlin College, at the time Christian College, is, is because education is the is the engine of an ongoing reformation or revival. That's why. And that's why in our church, we take Good Shepherd College or Bible studies and discipleship classes seriously. Ebenezer means a stone of a help. Ebenezer and stone of a help. And the Jewish people, whenever they want to remember God or remember somebody, it is their custom to collect and pile the stones for memories. So for instance, if you, when I went to Jerusalem and I went to the Jerusalem Holocaust and I would check it out, first thing I check it out is that Avenue of Righteous where a lot of Gentiles rescued the Jewish people and there is one of my heroes, the Schind Oscar Schindler's grave and look around at his gravestone. All the visitors leave stone. They don't bring flowers, they bring stone. You know why Jewish people bring a stone rather than flowers? Flowers fade away, stone don't. It's their symbolism that we will remember you. Just like the stone never changes. Our gratitude and memory of you will be always solid. So that's the Ebenezer. What is your Ebenezer? Thus far, up to now, God helped us. Think about it. Up to now, do you know how much God helped you? You know, I just a few things. There are several occasions in my life I could lose my life easily. I drove that uh, Cypress structure, 1989 October, five minutes before that uh, the Roma Prieta earthquake in Northern California happened, and the structure. The double-deck structure became a sandwich, and over 100 people died in the structure. I drove that in five minutes before. I remember driving in Mountain View, Latham Street. I was just going a regular, you know, signal light. And uh, as I enter, a minivan passed by. I was driving a small car, and minivan, without stopping, passed by me. And uh, I was, and, and then when I look at the back mirror, our lady said, like this, because she forgot that was her red light and she drove through. And we could be total perfect tea. Things, 
I have my Ebenezer. I bet you do have your own Ebenezer. You know, we need to share about our Ebenezer. Every Friday when we get together house church, what do we do? We share about our weekly Ebenezer, how far God has helped us this week. Even if you don't have an Ebenezer, you need to listen to other people's Ebenezer. You know, the liberty too, well, we're going to actually change to Venezuela too, but uh, I, last Friday, it was really wonderful. Because when every, what everybody shared about their experience of God in terms of a specific prayers was, it, it kind of uh, boosts your own faith and gratitude toward God. When you hear that uh, how God answers others' prayers specifically and help them out, yes, it gives you hope. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. And some, many times God speaks through each other. Now let me just close this. The real victory in this story is not just repelling the Philistines and achieving the first victory over them. It's a returning to God and remembering his Ebenezer forever. Amen? Rest of the story, chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, talks about how Israelites enjoyed God-given peace in their recovered territory. But the real thing they recovered was the presence of God. When we return to God, God will return to us faster and stronger than we can ever imagine. Dear brothers and sisters, let's return to God. Stronger every week. I pray that our house church, every house church, Every Friday become a stronger revival. And we all can say, I'm a stronger, grateful, and, 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 and more grateful to God than ever before because of ongoing revival. Let's pray.